Well, good morning. Good morning to those of you in the sanctuary as well. Uh, I'm Vic. I'm the college pastor. This is Joel, our communications pastor. And yes, we're both going to talk at the same, not at the same time, but you'll see. Uh, we're both teaching. We're both teaching. And That's we do this a lot at the 1130 service. Yes. And uh, Carlos asked us today to get us back into John by uh, doing this in all three services. And we sang a lot about Jesus this morning, which is appropriate. Uh, what a beautiful name. You think about the name of Jesus, maybe a lot of images uh, come to your mind, a lot of thoughts come to your mind. Uh, maybe you're just trying to get familiar with Jesus and church and all of this, and uh, you're just checking it out for the first time. I, I know sometimes when we've been around this and in this so long, uh, we tend to forget that there was a point in time where we didn't know a whole lot about this. And uh, I was telling, told the story in the first service that uh, actually in seminary, I used to have to use the table of contents to find books of the Bible. Uh, and so if you're new to this whole Bible thing, it's perfectly acceptable to use the table of contents. In fact, you're probably going to need it this morning uh, for at least one of the books we're going to go to. Uh, so if you need to find uh, John, go to the table of contents. It's, I think it's on page 1,165 in my Bible. Uh, but you also are going to, at some point, you're going to need Zechariah. So the pages may still be stuck together there. It's okay. Mine were, it's a new Bible though, so that's my defense. Um, but the main book we are in this morning is the book of John. And you might remember that we spent last semester going through this book. We made it through chapter 11. We're going to give you a little context there. And then we're going to go through the first 20 or so verses of chapter 12. But really, we need to give everyone just a recap. Let's catch everybody up. Yeah. So, and, and so what's crazy is the first 11 chapters of John covers two years and 51 weeks of the life of Jesus. The last half of John, chapter 12 through chapter 21, covers one week. And several of those chapters cover one night in the life of Jesus. And so John sets out with a specific purpose that he doesn't tell us until the very end of the book, but I want you to see this. This is why John wrote his book. Chapter 20, Verse 30 and 31, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So John's telling us, hey, I didn't write everything down, but these are written. The things I wrote down, John is saying, these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you would have eternal life in his name. So John is saying, this is why the book was written. You need to believe Jesus mm -hmm. is the Son of God, and when you believe that, mm -hmm. you will find eternal life in his name. Mm -hmm. That's the reason it's written. And he spends the first 11 chapters making his case for that. And every step along the way, he has challenged us to, to answer this question. Who do you believe Jesus is? And John uh, opens uh, in chapter one by 
Uh, he doesn't give a normal birth narrative, right? He goes back to before creation to say something bigger than the universe is here. Mm-hmm. And then he walks through the first 11 chapters showing us who Jesus is and why he came. And he does that uh, primarily through uh, two, two big ways. One is uh, there are seven signs in John. The signs kind of give us the purpose of Jesus. He turns water to wine in chapter two. He heals a paralyzed man beside a pool. He feeds 5,000 people with a happy meal. That's what it is. It's a kid with a couple pieces of fish and bread, right? He walks on water. He heals a blind man. And then to top it all off, he raises a guy from the dead in chapter 11. And all of those signs kind of show us why Jesus came. And it, and it should bring us great comfort to see that in those signs, in the water to wine, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus can meet every physical need you have. You don't have to worry about food or drink. Jesus has power over all of that. Mm-hmm. Your health, your physical needs. He healed a paralyzed man, heals a blind man, he can, he, can, he can handle that. He has power over that. He has power over nature. He walks on the water. And then he heal, he, he raises, which we both said that. He, it's beyond healing, right? The right. dude's dead. He raises a man from the dead to show he has power over the grave. Those seven signs are shouting, Jesus is God. And then, in addition to that, John gives seven I am statements made by Jesus himself that that give uh, some clarity to the identity of Jesus. We see the first one of those in chapter six of John where he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter eight, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the door that the sheep go through. Also in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then two other statements we're going to see later in John. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in chapter 15, in an intimate conversation with his disciples, he tells them, I am the true vine, and that's where you're going to find your source of all meaning and purpose. And in those seven signs, in those seven I am statements, John is making his case in these first 11 chapters that Jesus is God, and you need to make a decision about him. And we've come to chapter 12 now with all of that groundwork and context being laid, and John is about to ramp up the intensity of what's happening in the life of Jesus. So this final half of the book is this final week of Jesus. It's a very short time covered uh, over a, you know, quite a few chapters. And to give you context to where we're going today, just give you some more direct context, we're going to look at chapter 11 first. To set it up, I'll say it like this, that I've been a dad long enough now that I should have been prepared, but I wasn't. I should have been prepared on Christmas Eve (laughs) 
for what was going to happen, but I wasn't. You know what happens on Christmas Eve, right, as parents? You, you put stuff together <laughs> like crazy. I mean, you know, uh, this year for us, we have four girls. Yeah, four girls. And we were putting together a giant dollhouse. I'm talking about like almost six foot tall, like the kind only Sam's makes kind of dollhouse, okay? And when I opened up the box, I knew I was in trouble. And I should have been prepared for that. I've been a dad long enough. I should have known this was coming, that I would be up until like 1 a.m. putting together a dollhouse. And there I was, you know, scrapping all these parts together. It was like 500 parts, you know, to put this dollhouse together. It was crazy. In the book of John, he doesn't want you to be surprised. Mm. Uh, on what's about to happen. He's preparing us. And no matter how many times you've read through this book before, I don't know about you, but I have a, it's it's the way I read it. Sometimes I do get to this point. I'm like, how did this happen? How how did we get here again? How is there such an abrupt turn in the life of Jesus? Because we know what's coming. Crucifixion is coming. So how is it that as we read today about people in the streets lining up and calling him the Messiah, how do we go from that in such a short time to the crucifixion? And John gives us these tidbits. He says, look, this is the undercurrent that was sort of taking place. You can't miss this. In fact, he starts all the way back in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, he tells us that, this is verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's when he healed a man on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's a year and a half before these events. Mm. And they're already seeking to kill Jesus. Then we get to chapter 11. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And John's getting at the heart of what's really driving these people who want to kill Jesus. Then you skip ahead to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So really, these chapters that we think are really an abrupt turn in the life of Jesus, it's not so abrupt. This is happening underneath the surface. And Jesus... He's on his own timetable. He knows that he needs to kind of slip away. And he slips away uh, to a town called Ephraim. That's verse 54. And he, his disciples are there until we get to chapter 12. And what you need to know is that this is happening six days before the Passover. Passover is the Jewish feast that celebrates the greatest moment in all of Israel's history. This is the event of the Old Testament, right? This is where after 400 years of slavery, God uses Moses in 10 great acts and brings his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, and delivers them. And they're celebrating that moment when they slaughtered the lamb, they put the lamb's blood on the doorpost, and God's angel passed over them. So that's in the backdrop as we read, really from now on, in in the book of John, It's six days before the Passover, verse 1 of chapter 12. Jesus came to Bethany. That's where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Just a reminder, that's just where we were in chapter 11. Here here he is. He's back in Bethany. 
It's time for a party. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. Everybody wants to see Lazarus. It's a dead guy. He's alive now. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of, the, one of those reclining at the table. And Mary, this is the sister of Lazarus, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You could not miss what was happening in this moment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So at this dinner party, things are... Uh what you might imagine, it's a celebration of Jesus who has power over death and the guy who is the evidence that the check cleared, Lazarus. And they're celebrating, and then all of a sudden, um, this really tense moment happens. You ever, you ever been mm-hmm. somewhere like at a party where something really awkward and tense happened? Well, that's, that's going on right here. Martha's doing her thing, serving, which is what she always does. Mary at the feet of Jesus, which every time, interestingly enough, when you find her in the Gospels, she's at the feet of Jesus. She comes in and it's it's an amazing moment. She has no regard for uh, anything that's going on around her or maybe the way she's gonna look in front of other people. She lets her hair down, which would have been equated with, uh, with a loose woman. She lets her hair down, pours this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet and begins to wipe it off. And, and, and Judas kind of like, it says out loud, probably we know she can hear it because Jesus responds to him. Judas says, what is she doing? That's, that's a year's worth of money. She just poured out on the floor. And, and in Mary and Judas, you have this contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. In Judas, or in Mary, you see that Mary sees the worth of Jesus and does not care about the cost. And in Judas, you see someone who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And, and John sets those two kingdoms against each other in those two people in this moment when she anoints the feet of Jesus. What we see in these chapters is that in man's kingdom, we care about the price of something. We care about what we can get out of it. For the Pharisees and the chief priests, it was them worried about their place in their nation. For Judas, it was he was worried about what he could get out of that ointment if it would have been sold. He didn't really care about the poor. But in God's kingdom, there is no price too high to pay when it comes to worshiping Jesus. In fact, Jesus is going to ask for our very lives. So what's thousands of dollars on the ground to that? 
But this is a very expensive ointment, and I'm a very practical person. <laughs> I, I remember going on this uh, architectural tour of Chicago down the river in Chicago, and uh, it was one of those moments where the tour guy kind of stopped and just added in something. He said, oh, hey, not that long ago, I was uh, on one of these tours, I'm on the boat, and there was this parking deck that was really close to the river. And he said, they're approaching that parking deck and all of a sudden cars start coming off the edge into the water. And he, he, they said everybody was freaking out, like what's going on? And they found out that they're actually filming a commercial. It was like one of those mayhem commercials and the car, they were using those cars, you know, like coming off the side in this commercial. And in my mind, here's where I go to, I don't know if you're like me and you're practical, you go, did they really just destroy cars in the river like that? Hopefully they weren't good cars. Hopefully they were bad cars that, you know, like were ruined anyways. But that's where I go because I'm like, this is a year's worth of salary for someone that she dumps on his feet. So put it in our terms, 40, $45,000 is the average US salary. 40K on the ground, just like that. And there's a lot of us that would probably pause and say, really, is that the best use of our money in that moment? Jesus says, yeah, it, it actually is. Mm. Leave her alone. Because yeah. there is no price too high when it comes to worshiping Jesus. It, it means pouring out the most expensive ointment. And, and it has to do with her heart. Because listen, when we love someone, when we really love someone, do we think about the price? I, I had a, um, a point in my life where I reached, uh, where my wife was about to give birth to our fifth child. We'd just been through an incredibly hard season in our life of adoption and life changes, and uh, we're about to have a fifth child. That in itself was enough. <laughs> and she was scheduled to, for a C-section on her birthday. And I had this moment where I was just thinking about my wife, and I was thinking about how selfless she had been over this whole period at, at just incredibly... Um, an incredible servant in, in our house. And, and I, I said, I have to get her something. That's where my mind went. As I was reflecting on this, we're about two weeks before birth. I was like, I have to give her something. So I went to the jewelry store and I was like talking to the jeweler. I was like, I don't like anything in here. Can you make me something? Because this has to be unique. This has to be the best gift I've ever given her before. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay, I, don't, I better not ask how much this is gonna cost. <laughs> and it, it was, he was like, what's, your birth, what's her birthstone? Well, it's April, diamonds. Fine, diamonds it is. Wow. Okay? And so we start walking down that path, and I literally, it really didn't cross my mind. I didn't, I'm about to have a fifth kid. I don't have money for this, but it didn't cross my mind. I was like, I'm going to give her a gift that shows her value in my life. Mm. And that's what it should be like in our life towards Jesus, that there is no price too high when it comes to worshiping him. We want to give him everything. Right. And don't be too quick to align yourself with Mary in mm -hmm. this story. Yeah. A, a lot of times we're Mary in our head, but Judas in our heart. And we, we, we need to just kind of sit in that for a moment. Where are we? I think it's possible that you can be doing God's work without God. Mm. I think it's possible that you could be serving God and God's nowhere near what you're doing. You know, you could be a, a kid Sunday school teacher, you could be serving, leading a life group, you could be serving the poor, you could be helping the homeless, you could be doing all the things that happens in our church of people serving God. And if Jesus isn't in the middle of that, 
if you're not breathing and living worship in the middle of your serving, then there's a chance it's really just self-serving. Yeah. And I think, I think that's just a small application point of the story where Jesus is like, you, I have to be at the middle of it. Yeah. And Judas's heart is revealed here. And I think as pastors, it's easy for us to fall into that trap. We, we're, we're doing God's work, but there's oftentimes where we can kind of start to do it without him. Yeah. And we are constantly have to move back to this, that Jesus has to be at the front and center. We have to be worshiping him in, in any way in which we serve. And, and so word gets out that Jesus is back in town at the dinner party. Verse nine, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Right? So this is the freak show, right? Dead guy's alive. Let's go check that out. Was he, is he look like a zombie? I mean, what's, you know, he's come out of a tomb after four days. Let's go see this guy. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The, these are evil men, right? They, they, uh, they understand that Jesus has, he's caused this little commotion, right? And they, they, they've already been plotting for, you know, two years to put him to death. And well, now he's got this Lazarus guy. People are believing him. Yeah. Well, let's just take Lazarus out too, which is kind of comical, right? What are you going to threaten Lazarus with? We're going to kill you. Okay. Done that before. Yeah. Have at it. <laughs> I know what that's like. Um, but, they, but they make plans. So they, these wicked men. Uh, and their heart motivation is revealed yeah. in chapter 11. In the verses that we read earlier, verse 48, it says that the reason that they did not want him to go on like this was because everyone would believe in them. And what would happen? Here's what they're envisioning. They're envisioning this carpenter from Galilee who has no military training, who really, you know. He's a carpenter. What is he? We don't yeah. even, he's not speaking the truth. They've already questioned his every motive. He, if he comes and he brings a mob of people with him to overthrow Rome, because Rome is occupying the nation of Israel right now, then they'll lose their place. Because Rome had given them a great measure of self-rule. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they were the ones who were essentially ruling Israel. And they know if there is some people who come and rise up to overthrow Rome, that they'll lose their place of leadership, of rule. Because Rome's going to squash this mob, and then they're going to say, we need someone else who can control this better here. So at the heart of them wanting to kill Jesus, at the heart of them wanting to kill Lazarus, is that they're going to lose what they've come to love, and that's a position of power. Yeah. And the next day... After the dinner party, this crowd uh, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they take branches and palm trees. They go out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So this, they know he's coming, right? He's got power over death. He can feed our whole army, like in their mind, here comes our king. Yeah. We're about to overthrow Rome. And the expectation is probably he's coming in on a war horse with a sword, right? To, to we're going to crush Rome. Because what army can stand against a dude who can raise the dead? 
But Jesus flips that on his head. Mm -hmm. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. This, this is not a full-grown donkey. This is a, like a baby donkey. <laughs> young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, here's, here's what's going on. Kings would ride into cities uh, on war horses to show, we're, I'm here to conquer and to oppress and to crush but occasionally a king would ride in, a conquering king would ride into a city on a donkey as a symbol that he was bringing peace to the city. And so Jesus does completely what they're not expecting, right? It's this contrast between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God where they're expecting a, a warrior on a war horse with a sword and in comes this meek and mild carpenter on a donkey's baby because he's a different kind of king mm -hmm. if you go back in Israel's history then you'll know that the kind of king they were longing for was the kind of king that they started with uh, they go to the prophet Samuel and they say Samuel we want a king hmm. make us like the nations who are around us and Samuel goes to God and says look the people are asking for a king God says, well, you need to warn them what's going to happen if, you, if they get a king. A king's going to take their sons. He's going to make them serve in battle. They're going to die on behalf of that king. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them servants in his household. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to make your kids work his fields because kings thirst for power. And Samuel comes back with this warning from God, and the people say, that's okay. We want a king. We want to be like everyone else. Samuel is heartbroken over this. He comes back to God and God says, listen, Samuel, don't be sad because it's not you who they've rejected. It's me. You see, all along for the nation of Israel, I've led them. I've been their king. I was the one behind Moses in Egypt in that deliverance. I was the one who was behind Joshua in the great battle of Jericho. I've been the one who's been king over you. I've led you by a pillar of cloud and fire. I've been the one who's ruled you and given you laws. I've shown you my ways, and yet you've rejected me. But that's the way of man's kingdom. Man's kingdom looks for, for power. It looks for position. It looks for us to, it looks for deliverance in the here and now. Mm. And so the people line up in verse 13, they're yelling, Hosanna, which means save us. We're in trouble right now. In our situation right now, we need saving. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They add in this, so what they're saying is Psalm 118, 25. Then they add in this part, even the king of Israel. So what they're saying is, we're saying Psalm 118, we believe that the king is here. Yes, we believe he's the Messiah. They're waving their palm branches. We believe he's the one who's going to come and rescue us right now. And Jesus has to realign all of that that's happening in that moment to show, look, no, I'm not that king. The king you want is not the king I'm going to be. I'm the kind of king who rides in on a donkey. I'm the kind of king who's going to die. Mm. 
we need to flip to Zechariah 9 next yeah. so that you can understand verse 15 in all of its context. So go left in your Bible. Those are the pages of the Bible Vic was talking about that might be a might little be, sticky. Might, might be still stuck together. When you got it, say I got it. Wow. Man, these guys are quick. So Zechariah 9, verse 9. In John 12, 16, the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered what was written. And that's the quote that John pulls here from Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout out loud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is happening right in front of them on this palm, you know, that we refer to as Palm Sunday, that this is them right there waving the palm branches. He's here. But listen to verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem. I'm not here to make battle. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea. Jesus is saying, I've come to reign, and it's not through war, it's through the cross. Mm. And through the cross, I will establish my throne that will be for all peoples. Jesus is here, not just for the Jews, for the Greeks. Hmm. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast, some were Greeks. So they, they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That, that phrase, the hour has come, is loaded, <laughs> right? If you go back to the first sign, miracle, where Jesus' mom in chapter two comes to him and says, hey, this party is headed downhill in a hurry. They're out, of, they're, they're out of wine. And she goes to Jesus. And he says, if you remember in uh, verse four of chapter two, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And John introduces us to this idea that, that this hour has to do with the death of Jesus. And it comes up again in chapter 4. Jesus is with another outsider, the woman at the well. And he's trying to explain to her about when worship is going to happen. It, it's not going to happen on this mountain. Uh, it's actually going to happen in a person, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And he says to her in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. It's not yet. It's coming. In verse 23, the hour is coming. And then in chapter 7 and chapter 8, the hour is coming. The hour is not yet. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 12, you have this event of the Passover taking place where Israel celebrates the coming 
of God to deliver them through the blood of a lamb. And if you remember, you can hear the echo of John the Baptist. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of a sudden, the world is converging on Jerusalem. And some Greeks have come, some outsiders, some Gentiles have come. They want to see Jesus. And and Jesus utters this phrase, the hour has come, now is the time. And if if you jump back up and you see in verse 19 what the Pharisees, they say to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. But here's what you and I know Or if you don't know this, you need to hear this. The world didn't go after Jesus. Jesus came after the world. Mm -hmm. I've come to seek and to save the lost, he said. John says in chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. This humble king rides into town on a donkey to save the world. And when when the... Greeks come to him. He realizes now it's time. And make no mistake about it. We're going to move into some chapters where it looks like Jesus isn't in control of this at all. But this is absolutely the Father's timetable. None of this happens by chance. God has orchestrated all these events and all of these moments until now the hour has come. And that is the stage that's set for our journey that we're going to move through the rest of John. But this morning, we, we, we just sit in front of you this challenge, not just today, but over the course of the next few weeks. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Where are you in the dinner party? Mm-hmm. Are you Judas? Are you Mary? Where are you in the street when he's riding in? Are are you shouting, Hosanna, save us with your mouth, but in your heart, six days later, you're going to be shouting, crucify him. Where are you? And who do you believe he is? Because remember, that's why John wrote the book. He wrote it so you would believe Jesus was the son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. And we... We, we would offer that to you today. Say yes to Jesus who lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you should have died so that you could be set free and live part of a kingdom that is not like this world's mm-hmm. kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the beautiful name of Jesus. Salvation is found in no other name. And Father, we pray that today you would move in the hearts and the minds and the lives of people to celebrate you as the true king, that you would grant salvation to people who do not know you. All for the glory and the fame of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen.